prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer is prayer that gets answered. We don't pray so that we sound religious or God's impressed with how well we can pray or how much we know. There's nothing you can, I can do to impress God. God's, when, you can, when you know it all, can do it all, nothing impresses you. The only thing that impresses God is humility. So when you're not trying to impress Him, that's what impresses Him. And so, but, but what God's not, what, prevailing prayer is not prayer that sounds great. In fact, some of the most powerful prayers I've ever uttered were the least spiritual sounding. And they, but they were, came right out of my heart and out of the situation. And we've looked at the different types of prayer because it's important to understand the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6.18 that there are different types of prayer. And so, and they operate by different principles. And if we don't understand those differences, we'll, we'll, and that's why I think in some cases it hasn't worked because the prayer of faith works by, 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 by taking God's promise and standing on it and knowing what's God's will before you even ask. But the prayer of consecration, the prayer of committal, is basically taking your, your will and turning it over to God's will. And there's other examples of that. I don't want to spend the time getting into that. And we went through all those different types of prayer, not studying them in depth, but just to highlight the differences because the type of prayer that, that we're learning about is the type of prayer, prevailing prayer that's called a prayer of intercession. And we began to talk about that last time. That's a prayer essentially where we are coming to God on behalf of somebody else. The word intercede comes from a prefix which means inter, which is between two or among others, and then seed, which means to stand in there, to take your place in there, and it literally means to make up the gap. And we walked through that last week, and we'll touch a little bit about it tonight. And that can apply in any situation where somebody's in a need and they don't have the ability to pray for themselves, or may mean just need somebody coming alongside of them because of what they're going through, because they're difficult. Sometimes there's prayers and situations that get answered like that. It just seems like, you know, God was just waiting. The answer was just ready to drop off the tree. In others, it seems like we just have to battle and battle and battle, sometimes for long periods of time. And we'll talk in a few weeks or so why that's so, things that we can't see that can affect our prayers. But so there are times when somebody's in faith and they're standing there and they're standing on the prayer of faith, but they need people to come alongside of them and to stand with them that are not going through the pressure of that and kind of bind themselves together. And we are to pray for one another. In fact, that's what Paul talks about, especially in Ephesians 6, uh, 18. So that's what we're talking about. And, and, and but prayer, the prayer of intercession, praying for somebody else, uh, if, uh, is affected by things that are beyond our control. So we have to do our part. But just because we're doing our part does not mean it's going to work. But if we don't do our part, it may well not work. And it's affected by other things, such as the, the person's will that you're praying for. God cannot vi- violate their will. And some people say, well, I thought God is sovereign. He is, which means God can do whatever He wants. And one of the things He wanted to do was to give you a will He won't violate. So out of the sovereignty of God's will, he's given you a will that his sovereign will can't violate. He's still sovereign. It was his choice to do it. And, and so their will, you cannot, you cannot pray for somebody to receive something they don't want. If God can't do it, why do you think our prayers can do it? And we took a look quickly at Mark chapter 6 where their unbelief in that place, the same town we looked at a few minutes ago. Jesus came to his own hometown and his testimony in Mark 6 is there he could do no mighty works and he marveled at their unbelief. Their unbelief stopped Jesus from doing what he wanted to do. So why would we think their unbelief couldn't stop us from getting 
prayers answered for them. Now, we can pray for God to work on their unbelief. And God can be extremely, uh, extremely persuasive. He can't violate somebody's will, but he can put pressure on it. And he even teaches us some things in the Word of God that we're told to do to assist him in that process. I'm not going to get into those tonight because it will get us sidetracked from what we're here to do. And another thing that, in, that affects uh, praying for other people is just the spiritual forces that are at work in that situation. And we'll look more at that down the road, but 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 3 and 4, talks about Satan is the god of this world, and he blinds the eyes of those that don't believe, lest they see the glorious light of the gospel that's in Christ Jesus. And so the reason unbelievers don't see what you and I see is somebody's blinding their eyes, so they're confused, they're they're, they're distracted. And we've been given authority, the church has been given authority over those spirits to bind them and take, to, to stop them from interfering. And so th- those are things we need to understand that affect it. But there's a particular purpose, there's a particular focus to intercession, which is really the highest type and the greatest purpose for it. And that's what we began to look at last time. And it, it starts out with this. The purpose of, ultimate purpose for, for prayer and for intercession is to stand in, in the, in, between God and the people that have provoked his anger. See, in this we talked about the fact that sin creates a gap between us and God. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we, not, we, we will never fully appreciate, at least until we get to heaven, and I don't even know there, what, how far the fall fell. It's called the fall. It's the tumble. I mean, it's, the, it's tumultuous. It was so... F- great and cataclysmic a fall from, from the grace that they walked in in that garden that it took thousands of years for God to be able to prepare people just to receive his redemption when it came, even though he announced it right away. And because we're, we're living in a fallen world and we still live in a body that's fallen, it still wants to sin, at least mine does, I don't know about yours, but I'm sure yours does too. It just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't want to do what it's supposed to do sometimes and wants to do what it's not supposed to do, right out of Romans chapter 7. And so, we, you know, we, we're living in this all the time and dealing with it all the time, and the only time we won't is when we finally get out of here and we finally leave this body here and get our new one that doesn't have that issue of sin and doesn't have that issue of temptation. And so that fall was, was a, created an enormous gap between God and man. And God could not reach across that gap and pull that man back to him because, because of sin. If God touched them, they would have died on the spot. And so would have we. And so we talked about the word intercede. Intercession means to make up a gap, to, to bridge a, a, a void or a gap. And I used the example of trying to, you know, trying to plug your, take, take your, your, um, uh, your, your uh, vacuum cleaner. And you get over here and, you know, you go beyond, all of a sudden it dies. Why? Because you went beyond the length of the cord. And, and when you get beyond the length of the cord, it comes out of the wall. It's disconnected from the power source. It won't run. It's there, but it won't run. And now you can go back and plug it in again, but the problem is you can't get to where you need to vacuum because the cord's too short. This isn't rocket science, so you can, you know, say something along with me. So what do you do? You go get an extension cord, and that extension cord makes up the gap between the source of the power and where the power is needed that isn't long enough to reach it itself. 
And that's a real simple example in a natural sense of what making the gap up is. And what we talked about last time is, is part of the problem the church has today is we really do not appreciate the need for that because we do not fully appreciate how far that gap is and what that gap means. And so we're going to touch on this again because it opens our eyes, it opens our doors to what we're going to get into tonight. And that's this, that when, that, and this is the problem that most sinners have, they don't realize what their sin does to God. They don't realize because it's, most people think of sin as doing something wrong. Smoking, smoking won't send you to hell, but as Pastor Sam says, it'll make you smell as if you've been there. We look at those kinds of things as sin, and there are clearly some acts of sin that the Bible does talk about. Adultery, fornication, idolatry, those kinds of things. And so we tend to think of sin as doing something wrong. And that's, that it, those are sin, but that's not the root of the sin. That's the fruit of the sin. the root of the sin is rebellion. Because what happened in that garden is God had man that he created and that man was completely obedient, completely focused on, completely submitted to, completely in love with God. And Satan comes in and his whole purpose was to get them to take their eyes off of God and begin to look at themselves and what their rights are. And there's a clue in there for us today. Because that's his number one goal with you and me, is to get us focused on how this affects me. They offended me. They hurt me. They ignored me. They violated my rights. I'm not getting what I'm entitled to. Having no idea that what I'm doing is I'm basically just trying to establish my own kingdom. And that's what Satan's temptation was. For, for them to leave God's kingdom, rebel against God's kingdom, and establish their own kingdom based on what they were entitled to and what their rights were, and they were to be king of that kingdom. And that's what he tries to do with you and me. And so when my kingdom bumps up against your kingdom, we get into an argument with each other. It's called a war. And James talks about that. You have not because you ask not. And you ask and you ask amiss because you're trying to spend it on your pleasures. And he says, where do wars come from? It comes from selfishness. It comes from my fighting with you because I'm not getting what I want. And that's why Jesus says, and this is why some people have so much trouble understanding in the, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you know, the, under the law, it says if somebody, if somebody hits you, hit them back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If somebody tries to take something from you, keep it away from them. He says, but I tell you, the kingdom of God operates in a different principle. If something tries to take something from you, give it to them. Bless them with it. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek to them. See, why? What he's talking about there is our natural, our flesh instinct is if somebody hits us to what? Get back at them. Now, we're too sophisticated and we're too spiritual. So we get back at them more spiritually. I'm going to pray for them that they get what they're entitled to. You know, or we find other ways instead of just what really, really want to do is deck them. 
Some of you are more honest than others. You want to, you know, just let us people know you want to deck them. And what Jesus is saying was, when you're doing that, that's the impulse of your flesh. But when you're doing that, you're operating under exactly what this principle is that was in the garden in, Je- in Genesis chapter 3. You're defending yourself. You're protecting yourself. You're asserting yourself. You're exalting yourself. You're promoting yourself. You're establishing your own kingdom in which you are king. And that's rebellion. That's rebellion against the only true king. Because the only time you're entitled to establish your own kingdom is when you created it. We've seen this before. The authority that God has over His kingdom is because He created it. And when you create something, you can have your own authority over that. But don't bother wasting your time because you don't have the power to create anything unless God gives you the power, in which case you didn't create it, He did. This is why in 1 Samuel 15, it says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. It's idolatry. Why is it idolatry? It's not worshiping some statue on your dashboard. It's worshiping you as God. Rebellion is when I say, I don't care what God says. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going over this because I want you to understand what sin looks like to God. And because God is a righteous God, because God is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness, He has to do something about rebellion. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because He is not only holy and righteous, but He is also a God of justice, that means He has to administer justice at some point. He can't just let it go. We forget this about God. Because we live in a time and a period, especially in the church in the United States, where we have set, we've emphasized grace so much, and we should because great God's everything we have is from God's grace. That we forget that God's grace does not mean He's compromised His righteousness. God's grace does not mean He's looked the other way. Our sin required that God's anger and judgment for our sin be poured out on our sin. But His grace and mercy are such that He sent His own Son to take it for us. But He had to pour it out. And until you and I came to accept that payment for our sin, it didn't qualify to pay for our sin. It was paid for, but I didn't receive the benefit of it until I opened my heart to invite Him to come in. So until I've done that, that judgment's still hanging out there, even though it's been paid for, it's not been received by me yet. So all of that anger... Did you find 2 Corinthians 3? Peter, keep something there. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians. You don't hear a lot of this anymore, but you're going to hear more of it, I believe. 
We'll pick up in verse 4. So we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faithfulness in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That day's coming. And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in the flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destructions from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints. How many of that have that verse up on your refrigerator? God has to do something about rebellion and disobedience, or He's no longer a righteous God. And He has done something, which is He poured His anger and His wrath out on His Son on the cross. That's His love and grace and mercy for us. So that if you receive that gift, the forgiveness is now yours because the price has been paid. But for those who don't receive that gift, that vengeance and judgment and righteous anger has to eventually be poured out on them. Now go to meet with Second Peter. Chapter 3. Well, I can't, if I go before that, it's, we're going to get into some other things about that day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness. But he's long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So the fact that nothing's happened, the fact that we haven't seen fire come down out of heaven, the fact that we haven't seen that is not because it's not going to happen, it's because God is long suffering. He's holding it back as long as he can. Because he's not willing, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, why do we go through that? Let's go to Ezekiel 22. These are things I've known, but I've felt the Spirit of God just awakening me to them. Twenty-two, not thirty-two. Well, he talks about their wicked leaders and the kinds of things they've been doing and how they profaned His law and they profaned holy things and they've not distinguished in verse 26 between the holy and the unholy. He's talking about the priests, the pastors. He says they're like wolves 
Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression, committed robbery, mistreated the poor and the needy, and they've wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, verse 31, I have poured out my indignation on them and I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads. In other words, they got what they deserved. But listen to the heart of God. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, I am a holy, righteous God and what they've done has finally come to the place I have to do something. I have to do something, just as he did in Egypt to deliver the people. I have to do something. And this is what's done. This is why I have to do something. And I'm ready to pour my anger out. But I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I don't want to destroy them. I need some man who will come and stand in the gap between them and me and argue their case with me. Why would God need that? I mean, he's God. This is, this is where we've not understood how this works. We've said, and I've done this too, so, well, if he's God, when he decides to do something, he can do it or not do it. It's up to him. But it doesn't work that way. We learned a number of weeks ago why God needs us to pray about situations. Because what we saw happened in the garden is God created all this, put this man that he created in charge, delegated to him his own authority to manage it, to subdue the the enemies, to keep the devil out, basically, and to cultivate it and to develop it. He gave him authority to do that. And the proof of that authority is that man, Adam, then named everything, and God honored the names that he gave. And then Satan comes in and deceives the woman. He didn't deceive the man. He deceived the woman because the man was so led by his wife instead of the commandment of God he turned and disobeyed the God that he knew. Romans 5 says, talks about the sin that's in the likeness of Adam's sin. Because what that means is Adam had a known command and he knowingly violated, rebelled. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned. And when he did, what he didn't realize he was doing was he was taking his authority that God had given him and now giving it to Satan, who now becomes the God of this world. And he still is today. And we traced it through and saw that the second Adam came, Jesus. He came under a different line, lineage. And he came to be obedient where the first Adam was disobedient. And because he was obedient where the first Adam was disobedient, he established a second line of authority. And then as we come to Christ, we're taken, Colossians 1.13 says, we're taken out of the dominion of darkness, the domain, the authority of darkness, and we're transferred over into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus told his disciples in, John, in Luke chapter 10, 10.19, he says, Behold, I give you authority over Satan, and over all the power of the enemy, so that nothing shall in any way harm you. And then he sent them out two by two, and they came back ecstatic, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, cool, don't get too excited about that. Don't get focused on demons. But he gave them the authority. 
And I've not found anywhere in the Bible where it says he took it back from the church. So we've been given that authority on the earth to deal with things in this realm. God's authority, which means unless there are supernatural, and there are, there have been unusual cases where God will just intervene. But in most cases, God will not intervene. He needs a man, somebody wearing flesh and blood, who's going to exercise that authority here on his behalf. So that's why God's saying, I've got to do something. I've got to pour out judgment here. It's gotten so bad. I don't want to destroy them. I'm looking to find somebody that's got authority there as a man to come and plead with me so that I won't do this. But I didn't find anybody. So I had to do it. Go with me to Genesis. Excuse me. Go in Isaiah. I talked about this last night a little bit in prayer. Go with me in Isaiah 1. Come now. This is God speaking through, through prophet Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Plead with me for that. Argue that case for me. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. Then go over with me to chapter 43. Verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That's another message. And I will not remember your sins, but put me in remembrance. Come contend together. That state your case that you may be acquitted. In other words, I've done this, but come and argue it with me. We have this religious idea about, oh, God, you can't argue with him. You can on his word. In fact, he needs us to. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 18. Now, here's a situation where God appears to Abraham. It's a little unusual because three men walk into his camp. It becomes clear two of them are just angels and one of them is an angel of the Lord. And the angels come to him and it says, The Lord appeared to him by the terebinth tree of Mamre. And he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And he saw them and ran from the door, to the tent door to meet them and bowed to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by here, but let your, get, get a little water and wash your feet. Let's fix something for you to eat. So he hurried and had Sarah fix a meal for them. They took butter and bread and a calf, and they fixed a nice meal for them. Um, and the, and, the, and, the, spirit, and the, the angel says, Sarah's going to bear a child at this time next year. And she laughs at him. All right, verse 16. Then the men arose and went down and looked towards Sodom. Now you know what Sodom was. Sodom was a very wicked city. There's a lot of sexual sin there and all kinds of other things, very rebellious. And Abraham with them, went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, so the two angels have gone down to the city, and the one that is the angel of the Lord, verse 17 said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? 
Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what is spoken to them. Then the Lord says, Because of an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is grave, I will go down now and see what, whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood there before the, the angel of the Lord. That was the angel of the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, as to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall you not be the judge of all the earth? This is a man arguing with God. Arguing with God who is about to judge a city that's full of sin. saying, far be it from you to do that. Verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare it for their sakes. And Abraham said, indeed now, I know I'm but like dust and ashes and have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord, but suppose there were five less than 50 righteous or 45. Would you destroy it just for a lack of five? He's bargaining with God. He says, I got you to 50? All right, would... How about 45? I mean, it's only five different. Would you going to destroy the righteous with the just for the sake of five? So he said, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. So he spoke to him again. So suppose there's 40 found there. It will not do to you to do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, but I'll speak to you. Suppose 30 are found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30. He said, indeed, now I take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 be found there. He says, no, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Let it be not to the Lord to be angry. Verse 32, I'll speak to you once more. Suppose you find 10 there. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. The Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Unfortunately, God couldn't find 10. Look what happened here. God came, set to destroy the entire city, and a man negotiates him down to ten. Now, notice what he said about Abraham before all this. And this is important when it comes to intercession. Because intercession is a spiritual warfare. And you've got to make sure, this is why Paul talks about the armor of God before you get into it. Make sure things are right in your life. Because he has a, says some things about Abraham here. First of all, he said, verse 18, Shall I hide from him? Because he's going to become a great and mighty nation, and all the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, I've known him in order that he might command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So Abraham was a man that obeyed God. Abraham was a man that not only obeyed God, he commanded his family after him. So as a man, he wasn't perfect. I mean, his wife just laughed at God. If you go back further, you'll find out he struggled with unbelief. So Abraham wasn't perfect. That's not what God's saying. But Abraham was a man committed 
to be submitted to do the will of God and to obey God's commandments and to teach his household to do the same thing. So my point here is, you can't just go argue with God if your life's a disaster. If you're living in... If you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah, you're not going to get God to argue. You can't better not go argue with God. There better be a difference between you and the one you're arguing for. Because remember... In order to qualify to make up this gap, you have to be able to touch both sides. We looked in Hebrews, which was the qualification for a priest in the Old Testament. He had to be a man. So he had to be able to be, understand what, this, what men go through, what they struggle with. But he had to be chosen by God and anointed by God. So Abraham was a man. So he was qualified to exercise authority here back to God. But he had to be enough like God so that he wasn't one of the ones God was coming here to judge. You following me? All right, let's go to Genesis 30, Exodus 32. This one is so powerful. What's happened here, the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They've come to the base of Mount Sinai about several months later. God's given them the law the Ten Commandments to Moses. And while he's on the mountain, representing the people literally in the presence of God, they get antsy because they haven't seen their leader anymore and they have to see him in order to have faith because they walk by sight and not by faith. And so they go to Aaron and said, we can't see our leader anymore, let's make one. So they take all the gold that was given to them to build the tabernacle and they melt it down and they form a golden calf to worship as their God in direct violation of the first commandment that God's giving to Moses on the mountain. God tells Moses, you got a problem in the camp. There's a lesson in here for pastors. Some pastors are out there trying to find out everything that's going on in their congregation and spending very little time with God. Moses spent time with God and God told him what was going on in the congregation and what he ought to do about it. All right, that's the message for me as well as to another day. So Moses has come down. He's judged him. Now he goes back up on the mountain and God is ticked. He is angry. And so what happens here, let's go, um, let's go to verse 7. Exodus 32, verse 7. And now the Lord said to Moses, Get down from here, your people whom you, brought, who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way and they've, uh, that I've commanded them. They've made for themselves a molded calf, worshipped and sacrificed to it, saying, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Indeed, they're stiff-necked. I don't ever want to have God put stiff-necked in my name together. Stiff-necked means they would not bow their head. They were proud. They are stiff-necked. Now, therefore, let me alone, that I, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I will, I, that I may consume them and make of you a great nation. The Bible says that Moses was the most humble man on the earth, and it was a good thing because you got God telling you 
These two million people that have done nothing but give you trouble, they've complained to you night and day. You've been up day and night praying for them. You've been up day and night listening to their complaints and their problems all day long. When anything goes wrong, they get mad at you. They don't get mad at God. They get mad at you. And, 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 you know, and now God's saying to you, I've had it with them. More mad, more mad at them than you are. Step aside. I want to make a puddle of big grease out of them. And I want to start over just you and me. See, if, if, you're, if you don't have all your own ambition out of you, you're not going to stand up for somebody else. Because true intercession is when we start standing up for people that don't deserve it. Especially people that have... Jesus said, pray for those who despitefully use you. That's what these people had done. And God's saying, I've had it. That's it. Let me have them. I want to get my hands on them. I'm angry. I want to pour out my righteous judgment. Now, God never loses his temper, but he gets angry. He's angry at rebellion, especially pride and, and, and rebellion. He says they're a rebellious, stiff-necked people, and they've, done, they've crossed the line now. I want to destroy them, and I want to start over with you. Now, the people don't see he's angry. Moses is face-to-face -face with an angry God. But there again, it's not anything he's done that God's angry at. Verse 11, And Moses pleaded with the Lord. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, Moses pleaded with the face of the Lord. He got in his face. Wow. The more Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord... Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? I love this. When God's saying, he says, they're your people. And when Moses talked to him, he says, no, they're your people. And, and God says, they're your people you brought out of Egypt. And Moses says, no, they're your people. You're kind of like a father and mother fighting over the kids. You know what your child did? <laughs> they're not my child. They're your child. They act just like you. Why does your wrath burn against your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? First thing he says is, why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them, and to consume them from the face of the earth? He's saying, the first thing he argues, what are the Egyptians going to say? You couldn't get them into the promised land. You got them out of Egypt, but you couldn't get... Listen to what he's saying to God. You couldn't complete your purpose for them. That's what they're going to think about you. Turn from your fierce anger and relent from this harm you're doing. You know what the word relent means? Repent. You've got Moses telling God to repent. You better be sure you're on, safe, on, on righteous ground. You can't do this. Turn from your fierce anger. What are the Egyptians going to think? Oh, I like the next one. Verse 13. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and all this land I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it for the earth. He's saying, you can't do this. You made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, 
that you would bring this people into the promised land. You may be angry, but you can't destroy them. He is arguing with God on the basis of a promise that God has already made. He's taking God's will and arguing God's will and God's word back to God. And that's exactly what God wants and needs him to do. Notice God's not angry at Abraham. Who do you think you are, boy? That you should talk to me that way. Because if Abraham crossed the line, he's going to be a puddle of grease also. But God needed a man to stand in the gap for this rebellious, stiff-necked people. He couldn't find one under Ezekiel, but he found one here. And look at this astounding thing it says. Verse 14, So the Lord relented from the harm that He would do to His people. Some translation says, God repented of what He was going to do. He changed His mind. It's not that Moses talked Him into doing something and God said, oh. God wanted Him to stand up. He needed somebody that wore flesh and blood that had authority here to stand up to God and argue his case to them so that God would be righteously entitled to not pour out his anger at that time. Let's take a minute and go over to Numbers 12. Another story of rebellion. This is his own brother and sister. They got a little cocky. We're all potentially susceptible to this. And Miriam and Aaron, his brother and sister, spoke against Moses because of the Egyptian woman that he'd married. So he had a family dispute here. He'd married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? No, I was like, wait, God didn't just speak through Moses. He's spoken through us too. We've prophesied at times. Look at the next verse. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out here, you three, to the tabernacle of the meeting. So the three came out. Now notice, they're talking among each other about their brother Moses, saying, what right does he think that he speaks for God? God heard that. God hears murmuring. He hears complaining against authority. In fact, I believe in God's ears, it's like fingernails going down a board. Especially it's authority he's established. He hears that. And he calls them out. You three, come out here. Moses was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, come out of here. So the three came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And he called Aaron and Moses and they both went forward. 
Notice who's defending Moses. It's not Moses. Moses saying, hey, you talk bad about me. Don't you know who I am? God appointed me. No, God came to defend him. Now hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. If you're a prophet, I make myself known. And I speak to them in dream. But that's not so for my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. Him I talk to face to face. Even plainly, not in dark things. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, and suddenly Miriam becomes leprous as white as snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and she was a leper. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh my Lord, please don't lay this sin on us. Now look at he's going to now. He's going to the very one he just badmouthed and saying, Please pray for my intercede for my sister. Look at the heart of Moses. Look at the heart of Moses. Please don't let her be as. Uh, please don't lay this sin on us, which have done foolishly and in which we've sinned. Please don't let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when it comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, "Please heal her, O God, I pray." And the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord cuts her punishment down. Moses interceded for his brother and sister that had bad-mouthed him and complained against him. The last thing we're going to look at quickly is in Luke 22. I want to show you an example in the New Testament. Of a man interceding. And God listens. One you would not normally think of. Verse 31 And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now we know Peter at this point was was so full of himself that he had boldly said that even if, if the others should desert you, I will die with you. And Jesus said to him, Do you think so? He said, Before the cock crows again, you will have denied me three times. But Peter, Satan's come to test you. But I've already prayed for you. I've interceded for you. So that when you go through this, you will come all, all the way on the other end and you will be strengthened. And when you've done that, you pray for your brothers. You strengthen your brothers. It's interesting, if you look at the end of the book of Job, All the things Job lost were returned to him in two or three times. I've forgotten which the multiple was. But it happened when Job turned and prayed for his friends who'd done nothing but give him trouble through his great trial. So what are we saying tonight? Why is this so important? Because there's an enormous gap. God eventually, for everyone that does not submit their life to Christ. God is going to have to judge them with his fierce anger. Not because he wants to, but but he has to because of who he is. He doesn't want to. But he needs somebody who will stand in the gap for that person and plead their case 
and their cause back to God. He needs someone that will stand up and say, God, I know what they deserve. They may have even been nasty to me. It may be some relatives of yours that have done nothing but persecute you and laugh at you since you've been a Christian. And they may be the very, you may be the very one God calls upon to stand up for them. And it's painful because it makes you sacrifice your own desires, your own flesh. Put your own flesh down and say, God, get them! But then I always remember Jesus on the cross looking down at the very men who had nailed him to it, had beaten him, stripped his flesh off his back, and now, now we're playing dice for his robe. And he looks down at them and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. From the cross, he's pleading for forgiveness for the Roman soldiers that nailed him to it. Wow. God needs us to be willing to stand in the gap. And that's what intercession in its purest form, ultimately is. And the confidence we have is because, first of all, it's something God wants done. Secondly, God's given us the authority to come back and argue the case. The only thing that's lacking is for us to begin to do it. And we're going to talk about that as we get into this study further as we go about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We're going to talk more about what it is and how to do it. But I really felt led to go back and just why this is so critical. Because we often think, well, if he's God, he'll, he'll, he'll save them. But he can't unless somebody pleads for them. Amen. Father, we thank you. And trust, Lord, that by your spirit, the word that we've heard tonight becomes sown down in our heart and begins to grow in us. And your spirit begins to work in our hearts and to touch us and encourage us and to inspire us and to strengthen us so that we'll begin to be a people who are willing to stand up and say, use me. Let me stand in the gap. Don't say I can't find somebody. Here I am. Lord, we can't do this in our strength. We can't do this in our own determination. We can't do this in our might. Help us to be willing, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.